This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continuously be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear and rejoice in it. O come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know, when we come in the Lord's house, there are always some uninvited guests. Because you know, wherever God's people are, Satan's demons show up. But there's one thing that they cannot stand. Do you know what that is? It's our praise. So I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and give God 60 seconds of praise. Either repeat your favorite praise text or just give a short testimony. But let's praise God for 60 seconds and make sure all the uninvited guests run straight out of here. How about that? Amen. I'm going to ask you to sing with me. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving I'll be a pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Give me the message that you want us to hear today and prepare our hearts to receive it. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. It is really a pleasure to be with you today and I want to thank your pastor and your first elder, Dr. Edwards, for inviting me and, you know, it's amazing, I worked just down the street or down the road for about 17 years, almost 17 years, and I think I've only been here twice, but each time it's been a pleasure. I remember when you hosted, um, it was a weekend where we brought our youth together and the youth from the campus with your youth here, and it was a really nice weekend. I'd like to bring you greetings from ARC. What's ARC? ARC is Advancing resources for campus ministers, and I feel since we're so close to the campus that you of all churches in Orlando, this church will be very interested in this information that I'm about to share. That is that there is a nonprofit that began in Berkeley, California about three years ago, and it began with the sole purpose of supporting Adventist students who go to non-Adventist schools. Because traditionally in our church, our resources go to our colleges and universities. But do you know that of the eight, 18 million Adventists around the world, we have about 1.8 million, no, sorry, 8 million of that group are Seventh-day Adventist youth. And of the 8 million Seventh-day Adventist youth, you want to guess how many actually go to Adventist universities and colleges? Anybody want to make a wild guess? <laughs> Only about 
maybe 15. But over 80% of that 8 million of our seven Adventist youth actually go to non-Adventist colleges and universities. And so our church has finally come to the realization that if we want to keep our young adults and have strong, vibrant young adults who remain in the church, then we need to pay some attention to what happens when our youth go to non-Adventist universities and colleges. And so, at, um, you may have heard, those of you who went to General Conference, that we now have a director of public campus ministries at the General Conference level. At the North American Division level, we also have a director who was one of the founders of the nonprofit organization I mentioned, ARC. And every year, there's a 10-day institute that it, um, it goes around to different regions. It was, it's been in California. It's been in Michigan, last year it was in Ontario, different parts of North American Division. And that 10-day institute is just to train student leaders. So if you know of a, a, if you have a young person who's going away to college, or you know of any young people here at, at, this U, at UCF who want to be trained to have stronger skills in being a student leader on campus, how to start and maintain a thriving ministry, the nonprofit organization will provide grant funding, scholarships, to help these student leaders go to this training so they can come back. Other things they do, we now have a student mission year. It started this year. We have 12 student missionaries. You know you've seen Mormon missionaries on campus. Well, now we're sending out Seventh Adventist youth as missionaries. They get a, stip a monthly stipend for one school year. They spend that year building that campus ministry. And, <clears throat> you know, we, we would like, our vision is to see an Adventist campus ministry on every single non-Adventist campus. So we have a lot of work to do. But, you know, little by little, over time, we want to see that happen. And we also would like to see Adventist houses. You know, you see the fraternity houses on, our, on the non-Adventist campuses. We would like to have Advent houses. Right now, we only have two. So we have a long way to go. And um, both of them, one we're, we're actually losing, and the other one in Tennessee, UT, University of Tennessee, needs repairs, and we're raising funds to help repair that one. But wouldn't it be wonderful to have an Advent house right here at UCF where our students could live and socialize and host events where they could invite others to come and share. So I left this literature here with, your, um, with Dr. Edwards so you can pick it up and read more about what we're doing and how you can encourage your youth to be part of it and how you can be part of that support too. Because without the local church supporting the, ad, the campus ministries, Adventist campus ministries, then again, you know, the, the ministry is only as strong as the local support that it receives. So that was my um, little commercial. <coughs> and now I'd like to turn our attention to the message for today. Our message today, we read our scripture from Job, and so that'll give you an idea of what the message is about. But the message today is a story, and it's built around a story in Genesis chapter 24. You know, we often talk about being called to serve. And how many of you here feel like you have, you have a calling? God has called you to do something, serve somewhere. How many of you sense and feel and have heard that calling? Thank you. And for those who haven't, listen carefully, because God is calling you. He calls all of us to something. He calls all of us to discipleship. But today's message is not so much about the calling, 
but the preparation. Because in order to do whatever it is God calls you to do, believe me, he's going to put you through preparation. And so today's sermon, for those of you who like topics, is called, Called to Be a Servant. The servant as leader originated in 1970 in an essay written by Robert Greenleaf. And we hear about the servant leader all the time, and Jesus is held up as the role model for servant leadership. But in the original essay, Robert Greenleaf offered this definition, that the servant leader wants to serve first and lead second. It's more about the more able, which is the leader serving the less able. In other words, other people's highest priority needs are being met in order to further their growth and well-being. And that's the servant leader. But how do we get to that point where we're willing to do that? Because that's not human. It's not a human response to make others' priorities and their needs our highest priority. Because as humans, we tend to be self-centered and selfish, and it's hard for us to always put others before ourselves. So how do we get to that highest model of the servant as leader? I'd like to invite you to travel with me back in time to Genesis 24, where we see a story about a young girl, Rebecca. But in that story, there are so many lessons that God placed for us, and especially for youth, because this young girl was probably around the age of 13, because in Bible times, around the age of 12 was the transition from childhood to adulthood for young girls, and they were usually married around the age of 13 and 14. So here's the story of Rebecca, and I'm not going to read it all because it does go through about 58 verses, but I'm going to summarize Rebecca's story for those of you who haven't read it recently. So Abraham was getting very old, advanced in years, and he, served, he looked at all that God had blessed him with, and he was content. But realizing that he was getting old, he knew it was time for him to have a succession plan. And his son, Isaac, was of marrying age, but had not married, because for them it was very important that Isaac marry one of his own kin, one of his own relatives, so that they could keep that line pure and be servants, inherit what God had planned for them. Because God had given Abraham a very special blessing as he looked into the future, and so that the covenant that God had made with him was that his family, his offspring, would be numbered like the stars in heaven, and they would possess and own all that land that God had given Abraham. So he called his chief servant, and he said, look, I need you to make that journey back to the land of my kin, and I want you to go find a wife for my son and bring her back here. <clears throat> so his servant was like, okay, well, that's reasonable to go find a relative, for Isaac to marry, but bring her all the way back here? I mean, supposing she won't come. Do I come and get Isaac and bring her to him to marry her? Abraham said, absolutely not. The blessing that I've been given is right here. So this, the right wife for my son, will be willing to come here 
and partake in the blessing that God has given us. And so then, you know, his servant kept doing all this. Well, if this, then this. And if this, then what? And if this happens, so what? And Abraham finally said, look, God brought me here. He told me I would have offspring numbering more than the stars. And he said, I will give you this land. So your goal, your mission is to find that person who will partake of God's plan for us. And so the servant got all kinds of gifts, 10 camels and jewels and all the things he could put together and loaded them up. And he set off to the land, the town, the little town called Nahor. And in this town, Abraham's brother and his offspring, actually that's where they had settled. So he, um, Isaac had cousins there. So, you know, as the servant was trying to figure out, okay, how do I get this right? He said, okay, Lord, this is what I need. When I get to this place and I sit by the well, then I want you to send somebody to come to take care of me and to take care of my needs because that was their law of hospitality. You don't see a stranger and just walk past them. You give them water, you take care of them. He said, but I also need, for this sign that I'm asking you to give me, I need you to make sure that she doesn't just take care of me, but she'll also take care of the camels. Now remember, he had 10 camels with him. And we'll talk a little bit more about the camels later. So he said, that will be the clue for me, that this is the right person. And so, as he sat by the well, it was evening. And as evening came on, as it got cooler and the sun was setting, the women came up from the village to get their water for their families. That was their task. And as they approached him, a beautiful young lady looked at him and said, can I get you some water? And he, he, said, he said, sure. So she went and she brought water for him, said, drink as much as you want. And then she said, I'll also draw water for your camels too. And so as she started the task of drawing water to water the camels, and she didn't just say, I'll get them some water. She said, I will draw water until they're finished all that they can drink. And so as she continued with that task, the servant thought, hmm, okay, two. But is she a relative? Because, of course, he didn't know who she was. So he started asking her, who's your father? Where exactly do you live? Who are your brothers? And as she explained to him who she was, he realized that this was Abraham's grandniece, a cousin of Isaac's, and so he had finally met who God had sent him to meet. Now, he didn't really reveal any of that to her. He just said, is there anywhere at your house, any place for me and for my camels and servants to rest the night? And she said, sure. I'm sure my father will be honored to serve you and to have you come home with us. We have plenty of room. And so she took them all home. And as the servant gathered his stuff together, he stopped to bow down and worship God, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And so they headed on to Bethel's house. And so, we'll pause from that story a minute to just look at Rebecca's 
destiny. Rebecca was ready to meet her destiny as God had planned for her and Isaac. But how did, how was it that this young girl, are there any 13-year-olds in here? Okay, so you, so you can connect to Rebecca here. Can you imagine at your age being willing, first of all, to feed 10 camels, and I'm going to tell you how, how much water camels drink in a minute, and then be willing to take care of this old entourage and take them home for the night. And as you go deeper into the story, I just want you to imagine yourself as a 13-year-old, just how well this would sit with you. But yet, this young lady was ready when God called. And so I'd like to propose to you that there are five important steps, not necessarily in chronology, one after the other, but, ne but nevertheless, five important steps and characteristics that are embodied in someone who has accepted God's call to be a servant. The first one is you must be obedient. You see, obedience to God's word and his instruction is not optional. If you, it's not situational. I obey today, but no, not in this situation. Can't do it, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll obey you next time. It's not like that. Obedience to God is, has got to be so habitual that it becomes automatic. God calls, you answer. God says do, you do. God says go, you go. So I think that's a most important characteristic of being prepared to accept your call when God calls you. And Rebecca at 13, we know our 13-year-olds. We don't always, um, they're not always obedient. In fact, 13 is a time, 13, 14 is a time when teenagers started to kind of challenge and push back against parents and their rules and their, their um, restrictions. But Rebecca was obedient. Even though she wasn't with her parents at that time, she still was able to reflect the things they had taught her to do. Second characteristic is to be faithful to the task God is calling you to do right now. Because even though you may sense that God has a great calling for you and God wants you to be up here, there as an administrator, a leader, or a pastor, you, gotta, you have to start somewhere. And wherever God plants you is where you need to begin to grow. So being faithful to the task that God is calling you to do right now is important. And this is no different from real life. I mean, how many of you as young people have dreams and goals and a career goal? Somewhere you want to be five, ten years from now. How many of you? I hope all of you. And some of you might want to be a nurse or a doctor or a professor or a surgeon, or a teacher, a pastor. But in order to get to that point, you have to have some preparation. I think I'm a lifelong learner. Right now, I'm, I'm in a, what I call a, a PhD school of learning because that's my ultimate goal, and it's going to take some time, but I'm going to get there. So as you're in that classroom preparing to be whatever it is you feel God is calling you to be, you have to be patient because there will be a time of preparation. Right now, God is calling you, but he's preparing you for his purpose. And so sometimes it's easy, but most times it's not. For those of you a little more seasoned or older who have uh, at the other end of your career, can any of you attest with me that it wasn't easy to get to where you are now? That there were some challenges. Sometimes you had more, it appeared like you had more setbacks than stepping forward. But eventually, trusting God, you can get there. 
So initially, when God calls you, it might not be glamorous. It might not be comfortable. It is often the opposite. But if you are obedient and if you're willing to allow God to do the preparation, and if you're willing to grow wherever you are at this stage in your life, you will get there. So let's go back to Rebecca's story. So she brought water for 10 camels until they were filled. Did you know that a camel drinks 30 gallons of water in 13 minutes? So can you imagine now the labor that went into her watering 10 camels until they were filled? That was no easy task. And she was a, she was a young lady of affluence and means. She could have called servants to come and do it. But in the spirit of hospitality, the master of the household served the guests. So she was reflecting her parents. She was the, the senior person there, if you want to say it. She had servants with her, but she was representing her family. And so she took it upon herself to take care of the needs of her guests. And so she, she did the servant's work, and she took care of her guests. And so that's another step or another characteristic that I'd like to propose to you. That is, you must be willing, willing to surrender your will to God's will. Because God's plan, in his plan, in the sign that the servant had asked for, it was necessary that the young woman who was going to be Isaac's wife offer to water the camels as well. And if she wasn't willing to surrender to God's will, she would have missed that blessing. So then as, as um, Abraham's servant talked with her brother and her father and told, him what, told them why he had come and asked for their permission, and he, he laid out the future that God had planned for Isaac's wife and how she would be a practically a princess in Canaan because her husband-to-be was going to inherit all of his father's wealth and his land and the children she bore would be the heirs to the promise, the covenant that God had given. She had no idea how much was at stake. But as he laid all of this out to her father and her brothers, they realized that she would continue the line of Abraham. She was the one who would inherit and who would contribute to this special covenant that God had given to his people because they all were looking forward to the Messiah. So even though as a child, Rebecca may not have understood all of this, that from her line one day would come the great nation of Israel, a Savior would be born, who would free the world from the bondage of sin. She didn't know all of that. But her answer to the question that her father asked her when he realized that they weren't going to bring Isaac to marry her, they wanted to take her back to Canaan to marry Isaac, and they said, look, we're going to have to ask her. That's a lot to ask of a young 13-year-old. And the question was, will you go with this man? Simple question. And Rebecca's answer had a rippling effect down through the ages, right down to today, because we know that of her line came Jesus our Savior, and that impacted your life and my life today. Her answer in verse 58 was very simple. I will go. This young 13-year-old was willing to submit to God's plan. How often do some of us lose out on the blessing that God has planned for us simply because we 
refuse to surrender. We refuse to let go of the things that might stand between us and God. How many of us have a form of godliness, but we deny the power? We're running with a message, but we don't have the power that will contribute to transformation. We don't have the transformational power of the message. Don't be afraid of taking a risk with God. Because when God gives you a challenge and you say yes, you're willing to step out of your comfort zone. Wherever he sends you, he will equip you to accomplish his will. And so the fourth characteristic is to be submissive. Accept your preparation. Because sometimes preparation can be hard. Let me tell you, there's no one size fits all. There's no formula, no recipe, no tailor-made preparation. Because God sends each of us through the preparation that he knows we need. Your preparation is different from my preparation. Your preparation is different from her preparation. Because God is looking at what we need in order to be ready to accept his call. Have you ever been going through something and you say, Lord, just help me to, to, to learn whatever it is you want me to learn now so I don't have to go through it again? Anybody ever had that experience? Because, and has anybody had the experience where you go through a trial and then maybe some years later you find yourself going through the same thing and you're wondering, oh my goodness, haven't I been here before? Is this deja vu? And you're saying, Lord, whatever I didn't learn the last time, please help me to learn it now because I don't want to go through this again. Well, Everything that happens to us is either for our good or for his glory. And oftentimes it's, it's both because he's preparing us for that great calling that he's called us to do. You know, we all know the story or the illustration of the potter's house and how Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and how he saw the potter making pots. What I like about that illustration is the work of the potter. Have you ever examined exactly why that illustration is so important to us? You know, back then, when they, you know, the, the pot, the clay was formed out of the dirt, and they had to stamp on it to kind of purify it and, and, and loosen it up a bit. And then they formed a vessel, and they could have just set it in the sunlight to dry. And, you know, as kids, we had some projects that, where we actually did that. But those kind of pots don't last long. They break. So even all the way back then, an ancient art that still continues today, the potter had to heat up a kiln up to 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit to bake that pot so that it would have endurance, it would be sturdy. And so when you look at the example of the potter, what God is saying is that in order to be the right kind of pot, you may have to go through some serious trials. You see, to make the, the pots that you put plants in, the kiln will be heated up to maybe about 1,900 degrees. And that's called earthenware. But then, if you wanted something a little stronger, like your stoneware that you use for your everyday dishes, that kind of clay had to be heated up, in a, um, baked in a kiln that had to be heated up to about 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit. But if like me, you like that porcelain, the kind of china that you bring out on special occasions, you keep in your china cabinet. That kind of china, that beautiful porcelain china, has to be baked in a kiln that is heated between 2400 and 2700 degrees Fahrenheit. 
but it produces the most beautiful, finest china, the finest pottery you can imagine. And that kind of china, when you put it in sunlight, do you know what it does? It reflects light. So apply that to your life and think about God wants you. He's calling you to be a servant. He wants you to reflect his image, reflect his light. And he has a goal for you higher than your highest human thought can imagine. And in order for you to be prepared, he's going to have to put you through some fire. You're going to have to go through some heat so that you, like that fine china, can fully reflect his light. But the good news is that while you're going through that heat, it doesn't leave you there alone. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, we see where Paul prayed three times, pleading with God to take it away, whatever it was that was, he was suffering with. And the answer that came back to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So are you broken or depressed or discouraged, wondering what on earth is going on with my life? This is not where God wants me to be. Just sometimes physically, emotionally, or even financially, just at a loss to be able to pick yourself up and know what's coming next. Just embrace your preparation because God says your lowest point, your greatest need is his opportunity to apply his grace to your life. I heard um, Pastor Mark Finley say, God is a God of impossible possibilities. God does his best work from nothing. He is Elohim, God our creator. Ask Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Did he see that in the bush there was a ram? He had nothing but his son to sacrifice. But he stepped forward in faith and found that God had sent a ram representing our Goel Redeemer. Abraham's kinsman would be his Redeemer, Jesus, who would come from his line, who would come one day to be the sacrifice for him. But all Abraham saw was nothing. Can God make something out of nothing? Ask Joseph when he was thrown into the pit. Into sl- sold into slavery by his brothers. Could he see the palace one day where he would live and rule over all of Egypt and his brothers would have to come back to him to ask for help? He would be second in command to Pharaoh? He couldn't see it as he went through his preparation time. How about Moses? He was raised in the palace. He was a prince of Egypt. But could he fast forward into the future and see that That was just a stepping stone in his preparation. God wanted him to lead his people out of Egypt. And to do that, Moses had to become a disgrace, an exile, kicked out of the palace, kicked out of the land, go into hiding, all in preparation to lead God's people to the promised land. How about Jesus, the prince of heaven, who left heaven to come down to be a human, a sin? He had to live among sin-filled, self-centered human beings and yet live a perfect life to show us that with God's grace it can be done. As Jesus toiled with his father, the carpenter, Jesus spent 30 years working as a carpenter's son. He was not the Savior, the Messiah, during that time of preparation. He was preparing 
to be led to his three years of ministry, 30 years of preparation, three years of ministry, and he died on the cross to save us from our sins. Do you think Jesus at some time might have gotten a little impatient, wondering, when, when I know what I'm here for, when do I get to do it? I don't know. But Jesus knew his purpose. He knew his calling. And he was willing to submit to those 30 years of preparation. And so it is with us that we have to be willing to allow God to send us through whatever it is he needs to send us through to prepare us for our blessings. The last characteristic is that we must be forever faithful. We must stand on his promises because 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may in due time lift you up. And the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and make you strong. During your preparation time, stand on his promises. As Job 23, verses 10 through 12 tells you, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And I want to close by sharing a, a short experience that I had as I look back over my preparation time. And I remember it's, it was about 15 years ago. I was at a general conference session, 2000, we were in Toronto. And I felt a strong call to God's work. And I responded, yes. And since that time, God has sent me through a series of experiences that if I could have seen them back then in 2000, I would have closed that door and said, okay, Lord, how about plan B? Because under plan A in 2003, as I was actually going down university to work one day, two students were drag racing down the other side, lost control, one lost control, came across the median in a Ford Mustang, and hit the van in front of me, and I was in the van, the Grand Caravan, which is why I'm alive to tell you this story. And then both of them hit me head on, and three other vehicles hit me side and back. I was in a six vehicle accident, I was in the middle of it. And I came out of that accident with several injuries, because I'm gonna give you the short version of this testimony. But along the way, God showed me and performed miracles and beyond my imagination. But as I recovered from that, I was in a wheelchair for a while. I had surgery, my heel was crushed and it had to be repaired in many places. So I was in a wheelchair and then eventually became, became weight-bearing and went through physical therapy. But I was walking with a cane two years later still. And the prognosis was that I would never be able to run again. I wouldn't be able to walk more than 50 yards and I couldn't stand more than 20 minutes at a time. And so two years later in 2005, I was listening to the testimony of um, a, a women's ministers director who talked about how you know she had taken women to Africa to different countries and done evangelism. It was so inspiring to me. I followed her to the bathroom afterwards and I said, you know, next time you're going, I want to go with you. Now you know some of us might have looked at this person on a cane and wondered, what is she talking about? But she was so gracious and she said, well, come, my sister, come. So later that year, she planned a trip where she wanted to take. 26 ladies to send 12 teams out to different countries in West Africa to do evangelism. So I said, I'll come. I'll be a Bible worker. Well, um, as we were preparing to go and we had a meeting together, she said, 
all of you ladies are going to be evangelists. I'm going to train you to do the sermons. You are going to be the evangelists, and the local church will provide the Bible workers. So I was like, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. But she said, you know, when God calls you, he equips you, and I'm going to give you all the materials. <laughs> so here we were, and then my sister and mother, both of them there, decided they wanted to come, so three generations of us planned to go on this trip. So when I first told people what I was going to do, they'd look at me, look at the cane, look up, so are you serious? And I would say, you know, I know it doesn't look like I can do this, and I know according to the doctor I shouldn't be able to do this, but I just feel that God is calling me to do this. And where he calls, he equips. So as we were getting ready to go, um, we had to drive down to Miami to get the Air France over to Paris and then Ivory Coast. My daughter and I, um, we, we went through, we checked in and everything, but then we started to go up to the gate, and they weighed my hand luggage and told me it weighed too much. I'm like, wait, I've never had anybody weigh my hand luggage. But they had a rule back then. It had to be 12 pounds or less. So we had to go back down to the gate, to the um, check-in, get my luggage, try to switch out, put stuff in that could go um, on the plane and so that my hand luggage would pass through security. And doing all of that, we, we got to the point where we were running very late. And the, as the attendant finished with her, they said, you better run all the way up to the gate. They're, they're boarding. You know, you're behind. you got to run. I said to her, well, I can't run. You know, I'm like, Kane, I can't run. So we started walking, and I told my daughter, I said, you run ahead and let them, let them know I'm coming. So we got to a certain point, and I don't know why, but she turned around and looked at me. She says, Mommy, you have to run. And so I just ran. I, I just stopped walking with a cane, and I ran, and we got to, we were last on the plane, and we got on the plane, and as we went through, we went to Ivy Coast, and we were sent on to Nigeria, and the whole time we were there, I had my cane, but I never used my cane again, and I remember on the last Sabbath, as I spoke that Sabbath, and I shared my testimony, and the pastor said, I'm so glad you told us what that cane was about because we've all been trying to guess, why does she always have that cane? Is she afraid? Is that her protection? Is that her weapon? And but I, tell, I share that story with you to tell you that I've never had to use a cane since then. And I often wonder if I didn't trust God enough, if I had said, well, you know what? I don't have the physical ability to do this. Maybe I should sit this one out. Would I still be walking with a cane today? Who knows? Because when God says go, and if we trust him, but we can't stand on the bank looking at the Red Sea and wait for it to be parted. We have to put that foot in to allow the river to part, the sea to part, so God can work his miracle. And so everywhere I go, I share that testimony to let people know, don't limit yourself by your human thoughts as to what God can do with you. And please allow him to prepare you as he calls you to be a servant.